In this episode of Emerge, I'm speaking with Richard Bartlett. Richard is an author, organizational consultant, and the founder of Lumio and the Hum, as well as a member of the Inspiral Network. He and I also share an identity as former participants in Occupy Wall Street, me in New York City and Richard in New Zealand. Together in this conversation, we reflect on whether Occupy Wall Street could be understood as a kind of bootstrapped collective intelligence. We talk about the rise of the V Taiwan movement and the opportunities for digital governance, as well as the need to leverage both social and digital technologies together in order to create robust expressions of benevolent collective intelligence. And as always, if you'd like to support this show, you'll find a very convenient link in the show description, or you can go to anchor.fm slash emerge and click on the button that says support this podcast. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Welcome to another episode of Emerge. This time on the show, I'm very excited to welcome Richard Bartlett. Uh, Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And do, and do you prefer Rich? Should I use that? I always you? tell people they can call me whatever they like. Part of me would like to oh, be yeah. called Dick. I've never, yeah. um, it's never really stuck, but I think it's funny. Right on. Okay, well, we'll, we'll go with Richard for now because that's who you are in my head. And and so Richard and I met uh, through Stephen Reed, who actually also just had a conversation with Richard that's quite well worth listening to, and and I'll link to that in the show notes. And uh, you know, Richard actually has been on on my radar for some time through his work with Lumio, which is a kind of I guess we'll say a uh, collective decision-making technology that uses uh, some social technologies like consensus that arose out of the Occupy movement, which Richard was also a part of, just like me. And and so we're going to, you know, we have a lot in common. Richard has also recently gotten into metamodernism. Um, and so there's a lot of richness, I think, in our dialogue. And we had a conversation leading up to this recording that I found to be you know, very generative and, and, and interesting. You know, I felt like we have enough kind of common experience and common ground. And, and you know, if I'm be, being a little bit light in, the, in, in Occupy, at least, a little bit of the common trauma of participating in that experience that has subsequently informed the way we move into the world that yeah, it felt it was interesting. You know, uh, you're, you're, Richard, I think you're you you live in New Zealand, but I, I kind of felt a sense of brotherhood, even though you know we're in very different places, uh, up to very different things. And so, uh, you know, excited to have you on the show. And I'm I'm curious if there's anything that you would add in terms of framing to kind of settle us into the conversation. Uh, I have so many different strands of my identity that I can bring in at different times. Um, mm-hmm talking about the the trauma of participation in occupy i think is a really lovely <laughs> a lovely <laughs> opening gambit i um yeah sometimes i think my my best qualities my values and my my attributes are just the flip side of my traumas mhm yeah 
I can go in many directions. You know, there's technology, there's writing, there's activism, there's sitting in cool. silence, uh, talking about your feelings. Yeah, I go. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You, you and I are both are, are both. I think people that refuse to be specialists, which is uh, fun, a fun a fun niche to to occupy. And, and so, uh, let's start off with occupy. I think you know it, that 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 whatever that was, however we want to whatever we want to call it, that phenomena that happened that we call Occupy, um, you know, I think it gets talked about and analyzed in a lot of different dimensions. But uh, what I'd like to kind of explore with you, I think, is just like um, the personal experience of it and and how it was a kind of transformative experience that led us onto the paths uh, that we can now look back and say, oh, we walked this path to some degree because of what we learned and experienced in Occupy. And so, um, you know, let's, let's set this up for, for folks. Uh, you were in, uh, like where, where were you in Occupy? How long were you there? What did you do when you were there? And, and, um, yeah, just kind of tell a yeah. little bit of that story. I guess, um, with that, you know, I, I always, I have this habit of trying to tell everything all at once. Um, but without going mm-hmm. too far back into the roots, in the recent history before Occupy, I had um, quite accidentally found my way into this group we called the Concerned Citizens, which was like intentionally trying to make us sound like you know old people. Um, <laughs> and we were we were like um, running creative events that had some kind of social justice theme, so so arts events mm-hmm. and talks and uh, film screenings and so on. And it was creativity first, social change second, you know, like that's, uh, I think without really thinking about it, I had some kind of um, allergy to the models of activism that I had seen. And, mm. I, and I really didn't identify with that, like doing protests or, or yeah, a- anger, I guess, like as a anger mm. in public was not really a thing that, that um, spoke to me. And, and then, yeah, that we started this thing. We were running events. It grew into a, a decent sized community of artists and, and musicians and other kinds of people participating. And it felt like we were onto something. Um, something personally satisfying, you know, more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And then Occupy happens. And uh, just being in New Zealand and seeing Occupy Wall Street, where it started in, in what, September. Um, at first, we were just like the, those of us in the concerned citizens were just like paying attention, and you know, like it, it was all my news was coming through social media, and so, and this is 2011 where social media is not in the same position it is in 2018. It's still it's still a bit marginal, and it's a pers- it's kind of like your your um, your private private shame, you know, like I'm, oh yeah, I'm on Facebook again, um, but there was this. I remember Occupy Wall Street happening and that being one of the few news stories that for me broke on Facebook. And then I started talking to my friends in person going like, Hey, have you seen this thing? You know, like (laughs) it kind of crossed this threshold and we started discussing it together. Like what is going on here? This seems, this seems different. Um, And yeah, I just had half an eye on it. And then there was a, within the first couple of weeks, there was a day in Wall Street where, I think 600 people got arrested on Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah. And and I watched that happening on a live stream and right. um and it just wasn't covered in in any um traditional media outlets that I could find. And that 
that was really stark. You know, I'm like, 600 people just got arrested on Brooklyn Bridge and it's not on like CNN or BBC or like you'd think that was a, a news story. And so that was when I, that yeah, I crossed the threshold in some way. And then uh, October 15th, so sort of like a month after Occupy Wall Street started, there was an international day of solidarity, which I attributed to Occupy, but actually I, I learned years later it was actually called by the um, ending artists in Spain. Um, yes. And that day of action, which I thought was, yeah, Occupy Wall Street day of action, okay. <laughs> um, some some people who I have no idea who it was, but some folks in New Zealand responded to that. And, and actually there was a few different um, camps up and down the country. And so I heard, okay, there's going to be Occupy something happening in Wellington where I'm from um, after lunch in the Civic Square. You Come on down if you're interested. And so I went down there with um, no, yeah, no, no really intentions, no motivations, no question, no, no, like didn't have a mission. Um, but all I knew was that I couldn't trust the traditional media to cover it accurately. So I was like, I better go and have a look. You know? Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. Fun. Yeah, it's a, that's that's really interesting. So I, I think it's useful to spiral a little bit here, just in terms of you know uh, what inspired us to go and participate, right? So, like, uh, it sounds like to a certain degree, there was this kind of skeptic skepticism of the media, but just a curiosity, wanting to see for yourself. That I think, as we discussed last time, you you, you then dedicated your life to it. Yeah. for a period of time yeah yeah and, and so for me for for me uh i i have and it's just so I, one thing I'm, I'm kind of endlessly curious about is that why it is that some people encountered this uh, phenomenon of occupy and like were just drawn like moth to a flame like i for me i i came out of a 20-day silent retreat as the brooklyn bridge arrests i think were happening but and just immediately knew like oh that's where i need to go now like yeah. right now you know and there was a and i and i like you i just showed up and i was like i don't know what i'm doing here i have you know no idea how i can even contribute to this this is just kind of crazy and a little scary i'm like sleeping on a you know in a park in new york city uh, i'd never done that before and and uh so there's something that called to both of us and i'm curious if you have any like reflections now looking back on it like Yes, there was this wanting to kind of get down beneath the level of the media's what they they seem to be saying. But what what was it? What was calling to you? If you have a sense of it now, um, for for a long time, like I guess since my late teens, I had a growing sense of not just injustice, but um. You know, like we have, we we throw this word around sustainable all the time, like sustainability, and it's so it's such a muted word. Like there's no passion in it. Um, mm. But mm-hmm. what does not sustainable mean when when you're talking about human civilization? You know, like that that means expiring. And to me, that is such a big deal. <laughs> you know, it's like what could be a bigger yeah. deal? Um, and of course, there's this, there's there's uh, the exploration of lots of other um, uh, you know animals and, and ecosystems and all the rest as well. But I mean, I, I really like humans, so just just concerned with the human society. Like, if if the way that we're living is not sustainable, that means everything that we treasure is up for grabs and at at threat. And mm. and I just had this growing like the more that I 
uh, got educated and 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 um, read more different. You know, I've, I've, a lot of my political education just came from reading Adbusters magazine. You know, like it wasn't like mm. I was going deep into Chomsky or, or something like this, but just enough to stimulate the sense of like, hey, everyone, there's something really serious happening. That just mm. had I just had this growing pent up pressure that just really didn't have an outlet for a long time, you know, like maybe yeah. a decade just about. And yeah. and then suddenly, and yeah, like I said, like the, the, what I recognize as, as activism as usual ha- held no appeal to me for whatever reason. Um, mostly because, I mean, mostly just from ignorance, I guess. Like I saw some kind of um, s- a glimmer of what activism might be and I was like, oh, I don't like that. You know, it wasn't like I went and investigated and, and came to a good conclusion. But there's something about it that turned me off. And then with Occupy, I just saw something different. I think um, I was really drawn to this idea that it was a leaderless movement that that grabbed me. That um, I was like, of course, it's not going to be about like that. Just really struck me as um, self-evident, like that the the political change or the social change that I want to see is not going to be geared around some fabulous personality. Like, yes, I mean, we'd already we'd already had Obama, you know, like and and seem like oh there's a fabulous personality that's gotten right into the very most powerful position uh, like institutional position that we have in the world and really didn't deliver much so yeah it was just like so obvious that that a leaderless thing and you know these days i'm not so not so stoked with that word leaderless but that was the word that we were using at the time like this idea that it's not going to be centralized around one personality that that was interesting enough for me to to want to get involved. Well, not even to get involved, beg your pardon, but to to want to go and get up closer and find out more about it. And then yeah. when I actually got down to the Civic Square, uh, there were all these people milling around, like <laughs> like three hundred people that didn't know what they were supposed to do because all we knew was that Occupy was leaderless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then and that was interesting on itself, you know, like just to be in this. It's like um, it's like when you sit in silence for a second. And there's not a task in front of you. There's not. There's not a job. There's not like we're not in transit from one point to the next. But we're just we're just being in this moment that happens to be here, and no one's mm-hmm. taking any initiative. Like something new can happen there, right? Mm-hmm. And and in our case in Wellington, after a few minutes of milling around, someone. What I remember was someone saying something like, you know, hey, uh, yeah, so. I don't want to be the leader or anything, but um, I'm going to tell you why I came down here and I'll just take a few minutes, mm. but um, maybe that'd be an interesting conversation we could have, which was, you know, I recognize now it's just like a genius piece of facilitation. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's so, it's so interesting to hear that story for me. And, and uh, you know, it, in the context of New York City, like we were ostensibly, we claimed to be a leaderless movement, but like the idea, idea of that and the practice of leaderlessness are two very different things and you know in the in the actual uh you know context of the movement in new york city there were leaders and there should have been right there were people that helped create the context that we're all drawn to and like it's uh, i mean it's so it's such a dynamic environment i mean even the idea of people all milling around with nothing to do or not any kind of coherent context to participate in. It's like how few humans actually get to be (laughs) together in that kind of space. You know, just that, that initial experience. Right. And so, and, and, and 
for me, I, I don't know if this is true for you, that, that Occupy, you know, I think I spent mm, maybe like six, seven months, uh, it, you know, really in New York City participating in it full bore, you know, like full time, more than full time. It was the most educational and transformative experience of my life. Like, I, I think I can say that without reservation. Like, maybe some of the time I've spent on silent retreat comes close. But in terms of uh, exposing me to just a diversity of ways of seeing the world, I don't feel like I've ever experienced anything like that. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm nodding furiously, which you can't hear, but... Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the, yeah, to me, not just the most intense period of learning in my life and, and personal growth, but um, it's just like by a factor of a hundred, you know, more intense mm. than any other experience I've had. It's just like so much more than I thought um, that I could have imagined was possible. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. And so we, we, I think we've set this up just as a kind of shared basis and now like, how for you so so I mean, there's so can many, i give an example yeah please because so, uh, my concern is that i've told variations of the story so many times it turns into a formula so one story i haven't told um about what is it, what is what is an intense period a super intense period of personal growth actually look like so one example is um a few weeks after that brooklyn bridge incident there were well i mean there was a lot of different incidences of police brutality um not in not so much in new zealand um we have a different relationship with our cops here than we do in uh, the u.s um but you know like the the uc davis was a really classic one um where you have people young people mostly uh restrained sitting on the ground with their hand behind their backs and then this cop comes along and just douses everyone in, in pepper spray seeing seeing that happen on the other side of the world to these people who I had no uh, no real relationship with, apart from this shared identity called Occupy, um, I was watching things like that happen and just being gripped in my guts in a way that, like experiencing emotions and physical sensations actually, that I had never had access to before. Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of empathy that goes several steps beyond just um, <laughs> a million steps beyond sympathy and, and run into this thing, you know, that I, I, I guess that's what people are talking about when they say solidarity, you know, and it's, and it's best form that, that it, the, my reaction was the same as if, you know, you had um, uh, like seeing my, my, my kid brother or my niece getting attacked by the cops or something like this, this kind of, this is this someone. This is someone who I really care about, and they're being subjected to this violence, and it is moving me to my utter core in a way that I haven't been moved before. Um, there's one little, uh, yeah, like a sliver of what I mean by the personal growth, like just having access to this this whole set of capacities and experiences that I just did, hadn't even thought about beforehand. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm, yeah, and even as you speak, it's bringing me back to certain. Uh, moments in my experience that were just yeah as you say moving to the core right moving in such a way that i feel like i was forever fundamentally altered by the experiencing of it that like my life trajectory was kind of i didn't know this at the time but i can look back and see it now kind of readjusted because i couldn't 
pretend I didn't have that experience. From there's no going back. Forward. There's no going back. Yeah. And, and so there's a lot of, I think, parallels to other forms of personal growth, you know, like, uh, and, and this is something else we share, like a Vipassana meditation where, you know, you see a way that you've been creating suffering and then you just like, oh, I actually don't need to do that anymore. I, w- I won't do that anymore, you know, and, and maybe you can kind of pretend to do it sometimes, but in general, you're kind of, uh, you've been altered, you know, you're a different being moving forward. And, and so I, I'm curious to hear reflections from you, like how did this experience of Occupy alter the way you see the world such that your life subsequently has been, been different? My inherent, like, I think I have a, um, whatever a personality is. I think my personality is biased towards optimism. Um, but that experience gave me confidence to go with the optimism. Like this, mm. this sense of like, ah, we got this. And it might take uh, months or years or it might take generations, but we got this. Like there is, mm. there is uh, because prior to Occupy, I thought that only a very small number of people cared about our uh, potentially expiring civilization, you know. Uh, And during Occupy, I realized just how many people are really in terror, you know, like staring down the uh, the uncertainty of the future and and are terrified into silence. Mm. Uh, not, Not due to any, like, complacency or weakness but just because it it uh invites such a huge strong negative emotion that it's like everything mm. you can do to avoid feeling that is is justifiable mm. and and i talk about the end of civilization but there's plenty of other things that are more immediate than that too you know there's there's like the extreme inequality of wealth or um people feeling like they have a voice or yeah, like just plain old-fashioned day-to-day violence you know there's so many there's so many different um, struggles uh, all in parallel. But, yeah, when, I, when we actually um, sat in a circle and, and asked people where does it hurt or what are you afraid of, or uh, we just found everyone had, had a, a just vast, long mem- menu of topics that they were terrified about. Mm-hmm. And after we got through some of that, then – we heard the list of all the good ideas that people have, you know, and, mm. and all of their ambitions and their, um, their joys and their competencies. And, and then we started to combine them and to have that experience of collective intelligence, that's what solidified the mm. confidence, you know, this, this, this optimistic certainty, um, it's not just that we have a huge number of people on our side that agree that things need to drastically change or we're going to run off a, a cliff. Um, it's also that when you bring those people together in the right configuration, our capacity for creative solutions is just orders of magnitude more than I expected it was. You know, like we had, we had um, some of our general assemblies were just absolutely symphonic, you know, like, we had, mm-hmm. I remember one, we had, I think it was Labor Day or something, where we were pla- planning like, oh, what are we going to do? It's Labor Day. Should we go to the stock exchange and protest and something like that? All these different like quite boring <laughs> proposals for like what kind of actions we could take. 
And then there was like a four-year-old kid who said, hey, let's have a parade. And, mm. and everyone was like, yeah, we'll have a parade. That's a brilliant idea. They're so much more positive and optimistic. And, and so then in the space of an hour or two, we rallied, you know, we got musical instruments and someone got cupcakes. And we went on this big parade to the town, like celebrating and being joyful and inviting people to have a nice time. And <laughs> that yeah. kind of, um, of course, before having that experience, I never would have thought to ask the four-year-old, like, what's a good political action to do on Labor Day? Um, but because we had the right, the right form, uh, we had access access to this kind of collective intelligence, which, yeah, made me uh, added a lot of um, strong foundations to my inherent optimism. Yeah, so I, I think I think I, I echo that sense of confidence, and I think part of it for me too was informed by experiencing the way that kind of intelligence, collective intelligence, can sort of self organize to. Uh, find a quote unquote solution that's just much more creative and beautiful than I would have imagined possible. Like it gave me more faith in the capacity of collectives. But then the other aspect of the confidence that really uh, struck me, I think looking back on it, was that the the, the simplicity of it in a sense, mm. like it was almost a backward step into Occupy, right? It wasn't like, it was like, let's put down all of our kind of ideas of who we are and what we sh are supposed to be doing with our lives and just get together and be like, Hey, like shit's pretty fucked up. Right. And like, how does it feel to acknowledge that? Oh, wow. Yeah. There's a lot of grief here. Like how do then, Oh, how do we handle grief? Everybody like, let's figure that out. Oh. And then there's a, you know, in the context of New York city, there's like a working group that forms that helps people who are struggling with grief. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is like, kind of like deeply human movement of, just being honest with each other in public, it was just, uh, it kind of decomplexified the whole question of like, will humanity survive? Like everything is so broken, like, and, and made me realize that, oh, like this is actually something we're deeply capable of. It, it, and it's, it's right. It's kind of like right here. We just need the right encouragement or context or environment. And for whatever reason, Occupy seemed to create that for for so many of us, and and there were definitely I, like I don't want to deify Occupy. Like there are lots of problems and uh, deep problems that have informed, at least for me, my, my subsequent learning and the work I do now. But you know, it was I had never seen anything like that in terms of the sort of collective expression of of care and 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 uh what what is the word like like purity of intention sort of mm. for the most part you know mm. there were clearly at least in new york uh bad actors but the the purity of intention was held so uh held well enough that it, it shone through in every case and and uh, yeah, that that for me is what really altered me. But I, I I I also feel you with the kind of collective intelligence piece. Like that was a I don't know. Did you have that kind of lens before Occupy? That was completely new to me at Occupy. Like there was a library at, in New York, and I remember finding a book. I think by this guy Tom Atley. Do you know Tom Atley? Yeah. Yeah, so I found a book by him. It was one of the kind of I think grandfathers of the collective intelligence movement. It'd be fair to say. And, uh, that, that lens, that way of seeing and like, you know, facil group facilitation was like not really something I was exposed to, but, but it sounds like that was that new for you for Occupy or was that something that you 
had just kind of been uh, further further no, kindled. It's totally, and taken totally new. By. It's totally new. And um, my uh, my good friend who I'd been uh, running these um, creative events with Ben Knight, who then later on became a, a co-founder of Lumio. Um, mm. He's a he was trained as a neuroscientist and had been specifically studying um, not collective intelligence but cultural evolution. Like how how is it oh, that um, how is it that you know one day monkeys got a hold of a fishing rod and then um, <laughs> started growing their brains and became humans. Uh, right. <laughs> and how do we have this? You look you look through the the short history of humanity and see these like massive leaps. Uh, and it's like mm. what is what's going on there? And then suddenly, mm. you know, we had this this lived experience of it. And he's like my uh, uh, he's, he's in the next tent over from me, being a commentator and explaining all all of this to me in terms of cultural evolution oh, from a science wow. perspective. You know, not not from just like a a kind of woo woo. Uh, everyone's right. kumbaya. We're going to get through this, but like <laughs> from the science of collective evolution, cultural evolution, it's just like wow, we're doing it. We're doing it. <laughs> Wow. Oh, cool. So that, that, that lens was extremely active for you then, that way of seeing it, which I imagine just deepened the meaningfulness of the experience as you were participating in it too. I know, I know it did for me, like to, to have that lens and then go and facilitate a consensus meeting and be able to yeah. see it yeah. as this expression of collective intelligence was just. I, yeah, I did. I, I've probably got it written down somewhere. I did. A, I gave a speech and, and my, my preface to the speech was like, I know I know we're not supposed to like get on our soapbox and give a speech in the general assembly, but I've put a lot of effort into this one and I'm, I'm promise you it's going to be worth your while. I was like super, you know, I was, I was really high on the experience. And, um, the, the, the point that I was trying to make was, Hey everyone, I think the general assembly is a bootstrapping collective intelligence. Like mm-hmm. that, that it's, even at this rudimentary stage, it is better than any one of us individuals. And if we keep doing it, we'll mm-hmm. keep improving our protocols and our relationship. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna um, we're gonna make something like the singularity, but it's not driven by computers. It's, it's driven by humans' intelligence and their relationships. That was just like whoa. <laughs> mm. And I just, I mean, I still believe in that. I still believe in that, but just my, my estimation of how the velocity has slowed down a bit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and so that I mean, that's, that's great. And that's a that's a symmetry that we we hold, uh, you know, that was the kind of way of seeing Occupy that I ended up leaving with like the best that the best way of understanding Occupy that I had arrived at was as a kind of new operating system for our collectivity, such that it could articulate itself in ways that uh, made for a better planet for everyone. And I I still think that's actually a really good explanation for understanding what that was as an attempt, like what Occupy was attempting to do at its best. It yeah. might have been nice, I don't know, if we shared that lens going into it or, or if that lens at least, I think, in, in New York wasn't very present. It was not kind of on the fringes, that way of seeing what was happening. I feel like subsequently, perhaps because it's uh, that way of seeing what it was tends to be a way of seeing that kind of more intellectual people adopt. Mm. It seems like it's being woven more into the history, like, or like people who say, Oh, this is what, like, I know, uh, you know, Mika White, I think, who's written now about Occupy subsequently, has has kind of described Occupy in more or less that way, and he was one of the creators of it too. And, and um, so, 
you know, I, I, I think that it is a very useful way of understanding. And, and so now let's, let's like travel. Um, well, do, do you, do you want to say something about the life between, or do we want to travel to now? I, I, I'll leave it up for you to decide. I'll, I'll give a, a kind of last comment, occupy it, and maybe think of a, a brief bridge to now. So Great. Um, yeah. just on that reflection, I think it's far too soon to know what Occupy was. Mm. It's only seven years ago. And um, the parallel for me in New Zealand, we had uh, in the 80s, there was a protest movement about, um, you know, a lot of New Zealand people love rugby. And um, it's like the rugby is, is like our national religion. And this is a particular kind of football for those international visitors. <laughs> um, and there was a protest movement which was about the apartheid in South Africa. And the focus was we're going to stop the rugby matches between New Zealand and South Africa until uh, we, you know, we're going to boycott those matches. We're going to do everything we can to disrupt them. And at the time in the 80s, that was just the most outrageous. Like everyone was like, what are you talking about? What on earth has sports got to do with politics? Like you guys are completely dreaming. They were just seen as the most like outrageous, ludicrous, just off-the-wall people. And so there's these massive, massive protests. They interrupted some of the games, but they felt like not very successfully. And in the subsequent years after that movement, it was like, oh, we tried and we failed, blah, blah, blah. It was sad. And now, mm. like 35 years later, if you can ask, like you get any politician on, on uh, an interview and you say, what was your position during the Springbok tour of 1984? And that question determines like whether you can trust them or not, you know, like, it's it's like mm. it's such a pivotal moment mm. in our um, establishing our ethics and and who we are. Um, mm. Where at the time it felt like a total failure, or not a total failure, but it felt like it really disintegrated in a negative way. So I'm not, mm. yeah, I, I I just what you've described about your Occupy experience, which relates so closely to mine and many other people I've connected with. It's so much of it is about a personal change. And that just isn't going to show up in the history books for for a few decades. <laughs> totally, totally, yeah. And, and uh, just to put a, a double click on that idea that we don't yet know what Occupy was. Like, I, I often when people, I remember when after in the immediate aftermath of Occupy, people would be like, "Well, what? Like, to, it failed. What that? What happened? Or whatever? You know?" They tried to kind of put a bow on it. I would say, like, look, like, you know, between Rosa Parks you know, doing what she did on, on a bus in 1955, it was nine years, right. Until the civil rights legislation was actually passed. Like that took, and that was like the initial spark of a kind of emerging consciousness. And, you know, they were organized. there's ways we can, <laughs> yeah. And they were organized. I mean, there's all kinds of, but, but it, it, you know, the, the arc of the movements of consciousness and our collectivity is, is, you know, uh, hard to track, but it moves in, in kind of waves, it seems. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, maybe this is a good bridge. It feels like we're in the midst of another wave, at least to me. I, I get a kind of similar sense as I, I think, well, I, I guess I'll leave that up to you. Do you, do you feel a kind of uh, cycling happening with regards to the kind of consciousness of Occupy? Uh, for me, it hasn't receded. So, okay. um, yeah, I'm like one of those big birds, like a condor or something that, that flies on the updrafts and, um, Occupy was like my first big updraft and it just got me so high that I haven't come down yet. Like I'm still coasting. Um, 
<laughs> like yeah, it's it's quite. So did you have it? Did you have a dissolution after Occupy? Where you kind of like felt less enamored with changing the world, or 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 not? No, no, because I mean, this is the bridge to now. Is that I um I got to s- smoothly transition onto other updrafts. You know, once that one lost its steam, like I could just keep going onto the next one. So like just down the road from our camp at Occupy, there's this um, co-working space. Um, which was full of these inspiral people. And here you have another self-organizing community that's proposing like radical systems change. But instead of um, being viewed through this kind of protest demonstrator lens, they're in a business case. They're, they're like, they're starting businesses that are attempting to mm. outperform existing systems like education or um, food systems, stuff like this, you know. And And I just like really smoothly, <laughs> hopped off the Occupy train and onto the Inspiral train without really any interruption. Um, and then found my own place there. And, yes. and um, yeah, we started the software company, Lumio. And it was like, ah, okay, I can take the values and the experience that I had in, in this Occupy moment and just strengthen it and continue it and make it more accessible to more people and make a living out of focusing on these questions. Um so yeah, I feel like I'm like the luckiest occupier in history. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean that but that speaks really well I think to the need to create a kind of ecosystem where we can participate in in an ongoing way whether or not these movements deteriorate like uh, uh you know I over here in the US like you know left New York City needing to heal like my body and my mind and all that and and basically like just completely lost touch with that whole movement. Like I tried to invoke it in my life in various ways, but there was a big kind of dissolution, you know, come down from that, that, you know, I, I now think was valuable in its own way, but it, it might've been nice to have an spiral around the corner to, to kind of catch me. And so that's, uh, it sounds like you were sort of caught and, and that you went through a process, at least it seems to me, looking in the, of, of sort of sophistication uh, of uh, over uh, kind of refining and sophistication of the sort of movement of excitement and consciousness and, and theory that you found in Occupy. Is that a, is that a fair way to put it? Totally. And, and when I say like that, it hasn't that like the, the movement never receded for me, it's because uh, people responded to what we were doing with Lumio and uh, everyone, you know, we were really clear in our storytelling that this is a thing that came out of Occupy and it's accessible to more than just mm. activists. It's just anyone that wants to do inclusive decision-making, you can use the software and it will help. And um, so we had this kind of respectability, I guess. So so um, people in city government, people in business and stuff were saying, oh, you're doing a good job. And also the activists were saying, you're doing a good job. So we're getting this positive feedback. And then you have essentially just about every interesting horizontal movement since 2012 starts to use Lumio and uh, Mm. not not necessarily with any depth, you know, some of them tried it and and dropped it, but uh, it gave us an excuse to make friends with people in every single movement, you know? And so um, I think first it was Hungary and then it was Spain and then it was Korea and then it was Brazil. And it's just like to, to stay intimately close with, each of these movements as they're happening one after the other after the other uh, over the years and see like, oh, okay, well, the the kind of 
progressive lefty radical activism uh, that I'm familiar with is so heavily dominated by narratives that are based in the US. And as soon as you just mm. stop paying attention to the US and go, yeah, like what's happening in Honduras or what's happening in Hungary, you get a very different story. It's not necessarily a positive story, but it's just a lot more mm. different things happening. And yeah, this idea that there's a there's a, a wave that you can read with any kind of linear, you know, like, oh, it's on and now it's off. Like if you're taking a global perspective, I just can't read that. You know, it's, it's just it's so much more complex than, than are we going forwards or backwards. Interesting. Yeah. And I think that's a fair way of seeing it. I, I am, I guess the, uh, the reason I think there is a wave is because of the rise of kind of distributed ledger technologies and the excitement around that, you know, things like distributed autonomous organizations and uh, blockchain and hollow chain, which we've covered on the show, there does, and, and the, the, the symmetries between that movement of energy and thought and consciousness and Occupy, I think is very interesting. Right. And, and maybe this is a good bridge then to talk a little bit about, um, I think, one of our other shared interests, which is, uh, you know, kind of let's let's frame it, um, given that we've already used this lens, like using technology in order to create a context in which collective intelligence can emerge. Right. And so I think Lumio is an example of that, um, that we've talked about. And, and there's. Also, I want to bring into this conversation. Um, well, actually, before we before we bring in um, another any other examples, can I just hear a little bit about the relationship from your perspective between technology and the kind of collective intelligence movement? Um, I want to be polite here. If, <laughs> yeah. um, <Okay>. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think there's some really easy. Um, like thinking traps that you can fall into about technology and, and techno determinism is the most obvious one. Like this idea that if, if we just had the right system, uh, everything else would be solved. Yeah. And I just, I've been very guilty of this. I'm, I'm working my way out of it, but I, I appreciate you for mentioning that. I just want to name myself as a me, me too. guilty. Totally. Me too. Yeah. I'm, only, I'm speaking on the other side of my addiction, you know, uh, and I'll never be fully cured of it. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, you can analyze the what they call the affordances. You know, like what what uh, what kind of behaviors are invited when you're using Lumio compared to using Facebook for organizing your co-op. Um, and you'll see there are some specific aspects of the technology that really support you to um, engage in a productive way and and focus. You know, like so. Actually, a, a basic example which might be worth explaining um if you're if you're doing a deliberation in person and you don't have any physical artifacts of that conversation you just have people paying attention in the same moment and people talking and listening it's really hard to keep track of where everyone stands and one of the downsides of that is that people just get louder and louder to reinforce their position and make sure that everyone understands them and it's really easy to get lost in the state where everyone's just advocating for their own position and no one's really listening to what everyone else thinks. And as soon as you add a physical artifact into that, some kind of technology, whether that's a whiteboard mm -hmm. or, yeah, a Lumio thread, it's a lot easier just to track what do people think, where do they stand, what do we already agree on, what do we need to focus the conversation on. So like, the, the, obviously technologies can help us with that. 
Um, but when I look back on the change that Lumio has been implicated in, I think um, it's really hard to know how much of that is about the specifics of the technology and how much of it is about the storytelling and people's expectations. And just mm. to say, like, um, our group has started using Lumio now and there's a kind of collective understanding that when you're on Lumio, this kind of behavior is expected of you. Um, it's kind of like, you know, there's, if, if, if I invite you into my house um, and we go to the living room or the kitchen or my bedroom, like there's something, there's sort of different expectations in each of those rooms. And um, is that because the kitchen has a fridge in it? Or is it because you've been in a lot of kitchens before and you've had a lot of experiences of what kitchens are like and, and you bring that that story along with you? It's really hard to know, you know, how much is which one's which. And um, in, the, in the sort of, yeah, blockchain decentralized technology space, there's a lot of people that want to focus on the fridge and the oven <laughs> and, um, mm. and, and often the rest of the, like, the other parts of the story get, yeah, marginalized. Um, mm-hmm. at, the, at the moment, I'm most interested, like the, I see this decentralized technology as an opportunity for new stories. Like we have, um, and, and I would agree, this is like another, this is another movement. It's like during Occupy, there was a movement of people going, hey, if we just did more deliberation, we could rewrite what democracy looks like. And now you have a movement of people going like, hey, if we just changed, if we had distributed ledgers, like if we didn't have to centralize our data stores, then we could make our institutions function in a much different way. I think that's a really good story. And and there's a lot mm-hmm. of truth in it. Um, it's not necessarily a particularly powerful story against like states with armies and guns, um, but it might be powerful enough to to get the ball rolling and to start prototyping new ways of doing electoral politics, for instance, like it, 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 it might be good enough, you know, and it's definitely good. enough. at the moment we're seeing it's good enough to mobilize a ton of resources, both like just money and also really, really talented people. And it's giving them a reason to get up in the morning and do something that feels optimistic. So that side I'm really into, and I'm trying to um, participate in that conversation and make it aware of the power dynamics of having physical bodies, you know, and like, why do we have states in the first place and what's the relationship between states and banks? And if you're going to go and replace these things, like it's not, yeah, changing out the database is part of it. Um, (laughs) But there's a lot of other parts as well, you know, and I'm trying to make space for the other parts. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's good to focus on the narrative and, you know, we've already done that a couple of times in this conversation, you know, uh, for us, I think both of us, this kind of narrative about the emergence of a new kind of collective intelligence was what ended up being a very captivating narrative for Occupy while we were participating in it. And I think there are some companies, like I'm thinking of like Stack and Holochain come to mind, uh, who are participating in this emerging distributed ledger world with that lens, whether they seem to be using it like when they talk to uh, potential people buying their initial coin offering or not, you know, is another thing. Um, but there is this kind of emergence happening. And so one property of technology that you said is that it kind of 
offers specific affordances, like new ways of participating together, I think we might say. Um, and But it also, there's a kind of like, hmm, what it enables to emerge that is beyond the discrete form of participation that seems to, at least in the outset, be uh, afforded by the technology. And, and I think um, Occupy is an example of this, right? Like it's nowhere written into text messaging and Facebooking that Occupy would be afforded yeah. or something like yeah. that. But it did to some degree result in Occupy. And I think, you know, there's a similar, we can point to a similar example, which you brought to my attention in, in a really, uh, you know, you, you showed me how significant this movement was, which is uh, what is, I guess, now known as the Sunflower Movement or V Taiwan, which I, I don't think that most, you know, Westerners, to, and I'm using air quotes, which you can't see, Westerners, you know, people who are in the United States, for example, have any idea. Yeah. Like, like, I know because I'm a geek about this stuff, but I hadn't like looked into it as deeply as you um, compelled me to do in our, in our previous conversation. But it's such a, I mean, it's it's hugely significant, I think. And I would love for you to kind of just, you know, get up on a bit of a soapbox, you know, even though we're both occupiers and, and might not appreciate that in general, but get up on a bit of a soapbox and just talk a little bit about V Taiwan and its significance for, you know, in the context of the rest of our conversation. Yeah. Um, with the disclaimer that, you know, I'm not from Taiwan, you know, it's, it's, it's read through, um, quite a, it's, it's on the, it's on the far side of the Pacific for me. So, um, I've seen something there and I'll tell you my version of it and, and I'm, I'm probably going to, um, mangle the details, but hopefully enough to entice people to go and go to consult the primary sources. Um, as I understand it in 2014, you have a, uh, social movement directly inspired by Occupy takes over the city, uh, sorry, the national government, um, the, the legislative buildings of the Taiwan government. And they hold the building for three weeks, which I mean already is kind of a big deal. And they, during that time, demonstrate how to run a deliberative democracy for the 21st century. And what that looks like is a couple of facilitators uh, all of the stakeholders, they, they were focused on this issue about trade between Taiwan and mainland China. And they get all the, all the stakeholders in the room, people that, you know, should be consulted. And they host a deliberation over a period of days. And there's, uh, it's all being live streamed. This is the only oc occupation that we know of in the world that had its own dedicated fiber optic line. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's live streamed. It's all transcribed uh, for posterity. It's, translated into like 16 languages or something, you know, like they really put a lot of effort into demonstrating like this is how you really run a transparent, accessible, deliberative democracy. Mm. Um, and and they they won. Like they, as far as the hearts and minds of the citizens was concerned, they won. And, um, and of course, they did this nice thing of when they left, they cleaned up the building so it was tidier than when they arrived, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, like – a nice little bit of propaganda. Um, and so then after 2014, immediately after that, you have this um, shift in the political status quo where it's, I mean, the, the premier and the mayor of Taipei and lots of important political figures there are suddenly independents. You know, they're not, they're not representing political parties. They're 
uh, representing citizens directly without that interface. And then you have um, v Taiwan, which is a specific um, process for doing citizen engagement. And like, yeah, I, I, as, I, as I'm thinking of how to explain the story, the important thing I think is the story. It's, it's how people in the country are, um, how they're viewing these experiments and how they're participating in them. Um, and yes, they're using some digital technology to, for instance, engage 5,000 people in co-writing the new law to govern Uber. That's awesome. And you, you couldn't do that um, without some really sweet digital technology. Um, but yeah, they, they, they demonstrated that it is actually feasible to do deliberative policymaking and even, even deliberative like agenda setting. So it's not just that the government says, hey, we care about th- mm-hmm. these are three safe topics that we can ask citizens about, like should the courthouse be red or blue? But um, let's let people just raise the issues that they want to raise and we'll we'll um work together to figure out like what's the best solution we can come up with for now um and they've just yeah they've just been really busy running tons of different experiments and these are these are not just like prototypes off to the side these are generating new law you know for governing the place um and they went so far as to because you know as soon as you start talking about digital democracy people talk about digital divide and saying well okay, that's all very nice for you geeks, but what about the people who don't have access? And in Taiwan, they really they really just absolutely nailed that argument by running some of their processes with no technology at all. You know, they just did, okay, we'll just do everything face-to-face and this will be the process and this will be the issue and this is what we're going to do with it. And they, they demonstrated that it's much more about the, the, the facilitation of how do you bring people together and, and hold them and form them into a collective intelligence. And... And the political strategy, you know, like what issues do you choose and um, where are you likely to have some degree of success and how do you build on that success and and win allies first in one department and then the next and the next and then build a a complicated majority. Um, They demonstrated that those factors were so much more important than the tech. And, yeah, the Mm. tech's awesome. (laughs) I'm glad they they experimented with new technology to, to do it as well. Yeah, yeah. And one thing that occurs to me as you were speaking is it's kind of like um, there's social technology and architecture, and then there's like technological architecture, like what we think of as, you know, digital technology and, um, you know, whatever the the future of our kind of, you know, dim, I don't want to use uh, collective intelligence that can actually push the world in a, in a way that doesn't lead to self-termination you know it will need to have both it will need to have both and it can't pretend that you can do it with just the technology nor can it afford to pretend that you can do it with just the 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 new kind of social technologies like new facilitation processes and so we 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 need to find ways to kind of weave these together in order to create something that's more than the sum of its parts quite literally you know it's like that is what the collective intelligence wants to do uh, and i think that v taiwan i mean it's just an incredible example of this and if you do like we already have in this conversation kind of just project out into the further future like instead of you know it's been what four or five years since v taiwan started Imagine 10 years in the future from now or 20 years, like if we're still around, 
presumably our technology is going to get better. Presumably more people are going to get turned on to these kinds of examples and be like, oh, maybe I should learn how to facilitate a group meeting, or maybe I should learn how to, you know, put all these technologies together, even just to have that narrative that like, hey, this is actually possible. It's actually possible already. And we're just getting better at it. Like to project it out like that, I think for me, again, it leads to this kind of confidence, this kind of like, I, and I, I, I hesitate to use this word. And I, I imagine, I don't know if, if, what you'll think of this, but like a kind of inevitability, actually. Um, when, and, and not like inevitability. So let's like chill, but like, we got this. I'm, I come and go on that one. Um, I think like, so, so. Um, you gave the examples of Holochain and DAOStack. And um, I'm, I mean, I'm friends with these people and, and I'm, I'm optimistic about what they're doing. Uh, and how do I say it? It's like I want, um, I imagine that there should be some coherence or some integrity or some alignment between uh, this kind of, large-scale transformation that we hope is inevitable. Um, hoping for the inevitable was a funny idea, but um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we, we, we can sort of sketch out like, ah, yeah, imagine this different way of doing institutions and, and, and coordinating large numbers of people. I'd also put R-Chain on that list because they also quite explicitly talk about um, we need to vastly um, increase our capacity for coordination at scale because we need to move like all of these coastal cities 40 miles on land in the next few years, you know, like they're, they're also, I think quite focused on real challenges. Um, but my, my confidence in the, in that whole decentralized technology um, narrative and space will be vastly increased when I see those um, organizations themselves really humming, like really demonstrating that, okay, we've got 50 people or we've got 500 people, and um, we're embodying a set of like self-organizing principles that demonstrate that working together is better than an authoritarian, top-down, centralized power structure. And um, it's too early for them to get to that stage. It takes you know it takes it takes a while for a group to settle in and then to find that um, yeah to find that resonance. Uh, and I'm I'm holding my breath for when that happens. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I mean. I mean that. that- that makes sense. I think I tend to be a little bit more, uh, I, I like naively idealistic for whatever reason, which I can afford to do because there are people like you who are who are not willing to do that. <laughs> what I know, I trust, will speak up and 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 say things like what you just said. And so I I I, I can I agree. I agree, and and you know I'm hopeful that one of these companies will get it right in such a way that we can point to and be like, oh look. There's 200 people working in a completely different way on behalf of a completely different thing, making good money, doing what they love, and making the world a better place in a very definable way. And then we can start to have some perhaps real, real fun again, like we did at Occupy, I think. And um, this does at least of- those of us, those of us who weren't lucky enough to 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 have our Occupy next to inspire a little. <laughs> yeah. it, it does remind me again another aspect of the um, the another facet of this kind of techno determinism thing. Um, if, if, if I get too focused on the technology, it cuts me off from my history. Like, Mm. um, because you don't, you don't look for tech insights in history, right? You look for them in the future. 
Um, but if, if you think about like what you described, these people working on something that makes the world better and they're getting paid well to do it and um, they've got a way of organizing which is, is based on these values of equality and inclusion and so on. Like we do have examples of those in history um, and, and actually in ancient history. Like it, 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 there's plenty of examples in the past and in the present of organizations that are, that are oriented towards purpose that respect people, that consider all of the stakeholders, not just the people who own a share in the company. Like th- these organizations do exist. Uh, but there are things like, you know, Bosch, the appliance man- manufacturer in Germany, and you just don't think about uh, the people that are making the washing machine might have something to teach the people that are making the blockchains, you know? <laughs> Sure, sure. Yeah. And I think that like a book like you talked with Stephen about, Stephen Reed, um, Reinventing Organizations, does a good job of articulating how this is already something that's happening now. And and I think you're right to even point out it's happened in the past in various ways. Like, you know, we don't exactly know what went on in some of those contexts, but it looks like they were up to a similar kind of game. Yeah. Um, I think, though, that the difference that uh, this represents perhaps is the kind of like lowering of the bar for access to that. Like you don't have to be lucky enough to have been born in a place next to Mondragon. Yeah. You know, instead you can boot up a new agreement structure in Holochain and invite three of your friends into it and start being of service or something. You know, like there's a, it's, it's it, the accessibility piece, I think, is what it will take to make it such that it's, a global phenomenon that actually can demonstrate and model an alternative way of being in the world that I think Inspiral has successfully demonstrated too. And yet it still has trouble spreading because there's not this, perhaps, I don't know, I'd be curious to hear what you think about it, but perhaps it's because there's not this kind of technological infrastructure that makes it accessible and easy to kind of quote unquote boot up. Of course, that needs to be present with the social and the kind of personal technology and self-transformation and all that. But if those other pieces are there, you know, this is an indispensable piece, this technology layer. I, uh, so Inspiral is a great case because it fluctuates. Um, I think we've had up to like 300 people um, and then it always it, it always kind of yeah condenses back. I think we're currently at two hundred, and and it's never you know there's been times where we've we've tried to set up an outpost and it's for whatever reason it's never quite um, we've never quite been able to establish a new base in another location, um, and and you've got to ask yeah why what is getting in the way, um, and well this is this this that would have, yeah I've sort of set it up as as if we're trying to grow which we're not like scaling is not really the intention but um if the question is uh, we're doing something that seems like other people would want to do it how 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 can we make this more how could more people work in this way um that is kind of the premise for what we're doing with our latest project which is the hum which is focused on okay there's all these organizations that want to be decentralized what is hard about it and more importantly how can we support them to to get over those challenges and that's that's a lot uh it's a really complex and nuanced question you know like how do you actually go into a into a context where people are trying to be self-organizing and then offer them something that helps them self-organize better (laughs) you know um yes it's it's really tricky and the we've been doing this for 18 months uh, in maybe 20 something different countries with uh, usually in one of those countries, we'll have at least a workshop that will involve, you know, 20 or 30 different organizations. So we must have touched 
maybe a thousand different organizations that are trying to do this. And mm. um, it's a very informal kind of research. You know, it's not like we're doing science, but um, we are connecting with a lot of people and trying to understand what is it that we can say or offer that will actually help. And I mean, you just look at the agenda for our workshop and it's about 80% culture, 20% technology. Well, not just culture, but, um, mm. but ideas. It's, it's a little bit, of, it's a little dose of ideas, like how to think about power and leadership. Um, and, and then mostly about these practical things of, of how do you shift your culture so that, um, yeah, you can deal with the complexities of power dynamics and you can actually practice this thing called tolerance, which we all love to claim as a, as a, as a value in the abstract, but it's really, really hard to practice um, when you're actually trying to work together. Like, how do you do that? And, and um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard to <laughs> get people to pay enough attention to that subtle interpersonal and personal, you know, like the self-development stuff. Um, and it's really easy to get people to get excited about a piece of technology that's going to solve those problems for them. Right. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things I'm right there with you, I mean, geez, I mean, one of the things that I didn't mention that I learned from Occupy was how important it is that we transform our own consciousness in order to participate in these kinds of opportunities like Occupy and not just fuck it up. (laughs) Right. Like, uh, uh, you know, and that's part of what actually makes me very hopeful is that I, imagine and and what you're saying kind of persuades me even more that this is the case that if there is a future of kind of distributed collectives working together on behalf of a shared purpose like you will be able to succeed in that world to the degree that you have transformed yourself to be the kind of person who successfully can participate in that kind of collectivity and that kind of person tends to be one who has those capacities that you mentioned, you know, tolerance, inclusivity, like uh, multi-perspectivalism, these kinds of ideas that, um, you know, I think in the re- in recent history, we've been able to kind of pretend we're not necessary in order to be successful, which is, you know, part of the problem. Yeah. Um, and now it seems that the working kind of world that we're perhaps moving into won't let us pretend that those aren't important parts about being being good to one another uh, because there's not this kind of hierarchy that can abstract it away from being relevant to the way that we work together and uh, and so even the way that you're describing this makes me extremely hopeful like I, 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 and and that you're getting you're getting to be exposed and expose it to you said like a thousand different kinds of organizations that are working like this I mean it's that's beautiful it's really fun <laughs> Yeah, and and I think it also um, it's it's early days, and we'll see. But I I am optimistic that um, we're going to be able to demonstrate a, a a what do they call a competitive advantage? You know that that um, right. organizations where and a big part of it is just people being allowed to show up as themselves and be be yeah. um, imperfect and in development and um, uh, some days being awesome and energized and other days being a bit depressed and a bit useless, like people just being allowed to be themselves and allowing each other to be themselves. Like um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that 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 baseline makes you just so much more productive. And then when you fertilize it with things like people actually care about the thing that they're working on and they're being compensated in proportion to their efforts and, you know, like <laughs> you line up some of these incentives and so on, like I'm pretty sure that's going to add up to just vast uh, advantage on a, on a marketplace. 
and and then you don't really have to argue for it so much, you know. Then it's just like, well, it's just obvious thing. It's self-evident. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's something that I see uh, Hansi Freinacht out of the meta modern community talk about is this idea of outcompeting capitalism, yeah. right? And that that's the way that quote unquote we win in a kind of definitive way. And I I, I think. It's a very, I, I, I feel very persuaded by that kind of line of argumentation. And there's a kind of skin in the gameness to it, you know, that we're like, uh, that, that is appealing to me as well. And so, you know, we haven't yet gone into the territory of metamodernism, which is something that both you and I have pretty recently been exposed to, uh, you more recently than I, I, I think, I mean, if you're up for it, maybe we can schedule a part two. Uh, because I don't know that we have time to really give it its full uh, the, the depth of, of kind of consideration that it deserves. Um, is how does that sound? That's fine. I'm I'm um, engaged and happy to keep chatting now for a while. Um, but I can see the the value of um, giving it its own hour. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. I... Yeah, I think I think I, I would prefer to 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 push it forward or to table it for now. Um, you know, I think people who are listeners of the show will hear the kind of um, echoes of metamodern sediment in a lot of what we had been discussing, especially towards the latter half of the conversation, but really all the way through. And I think it will be fun to 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 pull out those threads together because, again, you know, I think we have a kind of experiences that I'm not sure how many, I don't know how present those experiences are in the metamodern movement, but I think they're relevant, you know, especially around Occupy and this kind of different way of doing work. But in any case, Richard, thank you so much for coming on the show. Is there anything that you'd like to share as we kind of bring this specific conversation to a close? Yeah, I don't have anything to add apart from an ellipsis, you know, like I'm I'm really grateful for this conversation and anticipating it continuing into the future. Yeah, me too, Richard. It's 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 a pleasure to meet you and get to know you and to kind of uh, I feel like you're, you know, uh we're in a kind of brotherhood, really. I feel like that from the perspective of our shared experience at Occupy. I really appreciate what you said about, you know, that there are these moments in our shared history where we can then know so much about somebody or kind of like feel into a shared sense of identity with somebody just because of how they kind of responded or acted or participated in a moment in time. And, and um, yeah, I, I feel that kind of, I guess, solidarity with you. And so I, I'm, I'm happy, happy to have this conversation, happy to share. I'm, I'm happy to uh, consent and enthusiastically accept your invitation into brotherhood.